0: Hello everyone, it's June 7th, 2022, so NASA finally picked out a couple of suits, or their tailors. Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace will be renting out EVA suits, which is good because now you don't have to buy one and never wear it again. But I think NASA will put them to good use. Alright, let's suit up and lift off! me the tower welcome to episode 362 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben and i'm dennis so dennis you posted something not too long ago about an interesting find having to do with the russian uh the russian almaz missions that i didn't know anything about so why don't you tell us about that because it's <laughs> weird
1: sure sure so yeah i i um had been uh checking out russianspaceweb.com anatoly Zach's website which is uh, a phenomenal one uh, it's Great to check out, period. If you have a little extra money, I recommend getting the insider content because there's even more stuff, and the level of detail is incredible. But um, I was just looking at one of these, yeah, old ALMA sta- uh, stations, OPS4, which never flew. And they referenced the infamous guns that some of these you know military stations had uh, previously. And we talked about them on the show. A lot of people know it's a fun bit of trivia. It looks, looks like a, I don't know, a long gun. You know, it's it's not a... It's not a howitzer, yeah. but it's it's pretty big. <laughs> what I had never heard of was the idea of this particular Almaz that never flew was going to have essentially a missile on it, like a frag rocket-propelled grenade missile. And so this thing, which has a pretty wild look, uh, basically has a, a solid motor that would fire it. And then along the stage, it would get spun up. And then along uh, the, the missile are all these small like little cylinders that are their own individual solid charges that when i guess it goes after its you know space lab or whatever and uh you know fires um all these little things would come out like yeah they're like uh, like a mortar shell i guess yeah and they 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 go flying out in all different directions 360 degrees like uh, petals on a flower <laughs> like, uh, like a like dandelion a grape. or
2: something yeah i think i think uh a great bomb is what they're called. Or a cluster bomb. cluster bomb, bomb. Yeah. yeah.
1: Cluster bomb, yeah, yeah. And so not only is, was that kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe they actually built this you know, hardware and really were going to plan to fly it. If, you know, they didn't have reasons, I think, financially to not actually launch this. But um, what also was pretty wild was that apparently these, these shrapnel charges could also double uh, as basically mini engines as well. They could fire their rock their motor charge inward and basically, I guess, redirected through the central chamber and propel the, uh, and contribute
2: the to the Delta V. That's crazy.
1: Right. And so mercifully, this never flew. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: If I'm reading this right, the, the spin up mechanism is uh, a bunch of these uh, blades. It looks like a, mm-hmm. like a fancy paddle boat wheel or a water wheel for, you know, running a mill. And apparently they, had a, a a gas bottle that would just like blow on these petals to spin them up i can't even tell what if the gas bottle is like driving a turbine inside or something but like mm. it's got like this this ring this red ring of petals that that's part of the spin up mechanism that's weird man <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what this is.
0: (laughs) It's a crazy looking thing. Like, people should look it up and take a look at it because there's nothing like this I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of space-based missile, I suppose. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it would look like. Nothing like what a conventional missile looks like. I don't know much about conventional missiles. I always say that. But they're more or less rockets. And this thing doesn't really look like a rocket at all. It looks like, I don't know what it looks like. It's just looks like... Five random things
1: kind of all stuck yeah. together <laughs> all along a single axis, oh, and the name of it is uh shield two um apparently the the gun the you know the cannon that we all were referencing that that was called shield one, and so that one actually did go on orbit. I don't think they ever fired at anything, <laughs> but, but yeah definitely um uh, an incredible website. There's just so much stuff, and he does such a great job with graphics and uh, schematics, and the level of detail is just phenomenal.
0: The XEVA selection. So this is kind of the big news topic of the week, although there's not a whole lot that we know yet, but it is still kind of newsworthy because uh, I think like this is a step in the right direction finally, or we're getting one step closer to having a, you know, new set of spacesuits. Mm. The key thing here is that what the spacesuits that are currently in operation are something like 40 years old, at least. So they're kind of outdated. So this is kind of like a holdover from the shuttle era. So it's kind of like we're still flying the space shuttle just for people specifically, you know? Mm. Um, So that part kept on going. Um, but we're in like the new space era, but we still have these old space suits. So I guess this is, you know, what's, you know, this is the new hotness, right? <laughs> um, but unfortunately <laughs> we don't know much about it, but there are some key things. So yeah, the, uh, the, the announcement was made on the first, um, and the two companies that were selected, and I don't remember all the ones that were in the running. There was quite a few, I think, though, right? Like five or six or something like that. But, uh, the two that were selected were Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace. So Axiom and Collins. Uh, they got the contracts. And one cool thing that is very much worth noting is it is that these suits really are going to be rented to NASA to the extent, and this is how I understand it, that if NASA doesn't need the suits anymore, they get them back and they can do whatever they want with them. Like they're really just rentals. Mm. So they don't even purchase them from these companies. They just rent the suits, which is interesting because even NASA, I think, right, buys, say, Crew Dragons, right? I could be wrong about that, but you buy the spacecraft, right? It's just built and managed by SpaceX. Well,
1: I mean, wasn't something like Inspiration 4 uh, a same Crew Dragon that had flown NASA astronauts? So SpaceX still owned the vehicle?
0: Yeah. I wasn't sure, but is that not maybe like NASA just like giving it back like they don't want this anymore?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I thought thought that was the difference between the old contractor model versus this new commercial model is that the – the companies still own the IP and the vehicles and it's, it's really them, uh, NASA paying for the service uh, as opposed to NASA paying for them to make the stuff for NASA.
0: I kind of get confused on that because I think mm-hmm. of it as like if, you know, I just tend to think in terms of aircraft. So if like Delta buys a, a whole bunch of planes, I thought that they bought them. Like they don't still belong to Boeing or whatever, right?
1: Maybe it's more like uh, rather than not so much buying the plane but buying a ticket on the plane. <laughs> that, we're, we're going to pay for you to, you know, Boeing to fly our people across country.
0: <laughs> that might be a better analogy. Yeah, Chris in the chat says uh, the aircraft leasing is a big business. See, and yep. I don't know anything about that. Like, I don't know how how prevalent that is.
2: Delta V then follows that up with, yeah, Russia stole a bunch. Basically, when um all of the sanctions hit Russia, one of the things was like, if they would have uh, flown their leased airplanes to a different country, they wouldn't have been allowed to take off. And so the Russian government said, if you're a Russian aircraft company and you are leasing an airplane, just go ahead and keep it. We'll let you license it in your own name. Uh, they like re registered all their aircraft and so now they, they're stuck in Russia. If they ever fly them out, they will be impounded. But uh,
0: Russia doesn't seem to care about that at the moment. One big problem with that, though, is that they can't be serviced, right? Because there's certain things that the Russians can't uh-huh. do. Well, of course, that's, that's also because of thi- sanctions.
2: Yeah, there's certain things that no country can do on their own, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Y- no, no one country can build replacement parts for every single commercial aircraft, yeah. right? <laughs> because they're uh, made all right. over the world.
1: Yeah, I remember reading about countries that were just like, you know, blah, blah, airlines announces they're going to write down 200 million in losses due to this aircraft that had to be abandoned in Russia.
0: Yeah. So the, but also training is included because, uh, hmm. yeah, just like, just how we were talking about, there are certain things that no country can do. There's certain things that I guess no one company can maybe do, especially if, if they're not intimately familiar with, you know, the spacesuits. So basically training has to come from by like, either ACM or Collins because, uh, okay. they're the ones who built the suits and they're the ones who maintain them. They're the ones who still own them. So it's it kind of interesting just that you'd have these private companies. Yeah. Just like training nasa astronauts as opposed to nasa training its own astronauts at least in you know terms of how to use the eva suits so yeah it's just it's just very different and personally i kind of like it because i do like the idea of mm-hmm. you know like you have more variety for one thing there's at least uh you know there are these two right here you know so it's not just one type of spacesuit because uh-huh. i think that's how it's been for quite a while now huh and so these suits should be ready for artemis 3 by 2025 but obviously i don't know what aspects of Artemis will be ready by 2025, uh, right. and the suits is among them. So, yeah. you know, never mind the suits, but those two, I, I kind of have my doubts. Yeah, I wouldn't um, bet on that. Yeah. But, yeah, and so what led up to this? So I guess we should kind of go back and talk about what NASA had been doing for some time, the XEMU. That was the old NASA Paradigm of how they were going to come up with these new suits for the new millennium, and that kind of went nowhere pretty quickly, or over the course of like nine years or something. And so they kind of eventually said, "Let's do the same thing that we did with um, the commercial transportation. So let's do that with our suits, and so let's you know farm that out to some other companies." And so pretty much they made a whole bunch of the data that they had accumulated on uh, the XEMU program available to these companies, and apparently it's very mature data. So it's it's like a whole lot of you know research that they've done over the years and I would think so because it's something like one point something billion dollars I think has been put into, I don't I don't have the number here but a lot of money has been put into this program over the past decade so I guess in order to make use of that uh, this is being shared with these companies to help them along so it's not As though they have to start from scratch, I suppose, or that they have to go it alone. Um, They are using a a whole lot of help from NASA or a a whole lot of specific knowledge that was gained during uh, the XEMU phase of the development.
1: They certainly worked on it a lot, so I'm glad that's not going to complete waste. Yeah,
0: yeah, because I would kind of suck to see that just be thrown away and then they say, okay, now you try, you know. So instead they share the information, say, okay, here's what we have. Take that ball and run with it and do with it what you will. So, you know, that's nice of NASA. Um, (laughs) Yeah, one thing that was kind of disappointing is that we didn't get to see what these suits even look like. There was, uh, or any Mm -hmm. concepts or anything. I assume that the development is moving along quite well. Or at least enough for us to see something, but that's, you know, I think that that's just being kept very hush- hush at the moment. Um, well, I guess because there is competition at this stage.
1: Collins did release uh, uh, some footage of a person kind of bopping around in the suit,
0: yeah, although it was said that that's not necessarily what the suit's going to look like, but it probably sure, is Sure, sure.
1: it's yeah, it's it's the uh, you know early development mockup of I guess <laughs> what they're what they're what they're currently going with. but yeah. But at least it was something to look at because it, it did look a lot less bulky certainly than a uh the suits that we currently have
0: It doesn't have like a helmet in the traditional way that we think of one or at least a shape you know it's mm. more like a um more kind of like a buzz lighter type of a yeah, helmet that's a good way to
2: put it yeah
0: it's kind of a half dome built into the suit and it kind of joins the back and so you don't really have like a you know, a very well defined head.
2: You don't have a very well defined neck, for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. On spacesuits, I don't think you ever have a neck. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, but at least, at least, usually the the helmet ring mm-hmm. uh, is hor you know roughly horizontal and and kind of stands in for a neck. This the mm-hmm. the ring is at like forty five degrees.
1: I do like the amount of uh, your field of view that you have from it because of that kind of bubble approach to it.
2: Yeah, I mean. It's weird because it doesn't look like you've got a wider field of view, but comparing it to the Apollo suit, yeah, you probably do. You definitely have more uh, more field of view looking up and maybe even down because you can lean your head forward without moving the, the chest of the suit. And that was one of the things about watching the Apollo astronauts. Like when they wanted to look down at their feet, they had to bend the waist and it just <laughs> it looked kind of bulky and silly.
1: Oh, right. Did I read correctly that? I think it's yeah, Collins' suit let's you uh, articulate and rotate at the waist which is something that you couldn't do with the uh, apollo suits and thus was very challenging for turning or changing
0: direction see now that's interesting cuz i don't see where it would allow rotation
2: it's it's underneath the hem of the shirt uh there's there's probably a bearing uh like a like a lazy susan ring kind of mm-hmm. bearing ring that rotates
1: i'm guessing that's probably for um you know for dust, if you're on a lunar excursion, yeah. the material kind of seems to cover any joints; like it goes below where there's any joints on your right. on your suit.
2: It's not super helpful in lunar gravity with dust that is uh, statically charged, but it's it's probably better than nothing. I wonder, I wonder if it's more for mechanical protection than dust exclusion. Just so you know, if you bump up against something, you're not going to yep. put scrapes and
0: scratches oh. into. And aluminum. That makes sense. I think they would almost certainly come into contact with something like if they had to sit down on a rover, for example.
2: Climbing out of the hatch. Isn't the suit one of the ones that never enters the hatch? You back into the hatch and you climb through the backpack? I thought that was pretty much what all of the XEVA candidates look like, kind of like the Orlin uh, entry method.
1: Yeah, but these 2019 pictures, that's, yeah, that's one difference between the, the current crop and these ones is that it looks like like the backpack is a proper strap-on backpack hmm. and not so much, yeah, that it's, it's kind of the, yeah, the, the door <laughs> that you then close behind you. Like the, um, uh, the XEMU suit had that going for it as well.
0: Yeah. And I think also speaking of the ability to rotate the hips, I think the arms work in much the same way, right? It's that's what it looks like. They kind of rotate. Um, hmm. I think, I don't know, it, it, it might, might not be, but it looks like there's rings there. Like, uh then that's how they're able to basically rotate at the shoulder, which you couldn't do in a traditional spacesuit, right? You have... Yeah,
2: no, no, you can. It, it's... I mean, you can move, shoulders, but doesn't... shoulders are really tough. Usually what you do is you have a bearing ring that's canted. The top is tipped outward about 45 degrees, and that roughly approximate the motion of a shoulder, but... Shoulders and hips—they're—they're both really, really hard to account for, just because they're ball joints. Um, You need a spherical—a spherical spherical joint without having access to the center of that sphere.
1: It always reminds me of the uh, the Lost in Space robots' arms. You know, Danger Will Robinson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Right. They kind of have one pivot point. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. I'm disappointed that NASA's XEMU, like the. The first one that they brought out never materialized. It was going to be so cool to have an official NASA suit. I mean, I totally agree, David, that it's really nice to have more commercial applications. But
0: Well, it was a cool-looking suit. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. So just now, Delta V posted a list of all of uh, the bidders in the spacesuit wars. I don't know why I'm calling it that, but (laughs) um, it's more than a couple. I don't know why. I was thinking it was like five or six. Yeah, it's like something like 30. I mean, maybe, well, not quite, but 20-something it looks like. So okay. there's quite a few actually. Wow. And it's
1: worth noting too that there was some consolidation basically where there were partnerships among these uh, these bidders because I, I, I think, uh, unfortunately I don't have it up right now, but I'm pretty sure Collins teamed up with um, ILC Dover and Oceaneering. I know Axiom teamed up with Paragon because Paragon's Tucson-based. woohoo. Go Paragon but I don't know there's someone else involved there too so I apologize to that company for not <laughs> knowing who that is
0: and cons I guess paired up with ILC Dover because I think that they have a hand in designing the current spacesuits right the ones that, that are using or maybe during the Apollo era actually um the ones that were on the moon I believe mm. uh, but they have definitely you know flown some suits as it were so they've already kind of done that so I I guess that was a good good decision yeah. uh, to partner up with them One requirement of NASA for these new suits is that they have to be able to fit a wide range of body sizes, and so the figure that is quoted is as small as as women in the lower fifth percentile I think and then as large as men in the the 95th percentile right so basically going to from you know the very small or the very um, I guess you might say um, like the well below average small person to the very large person so it, it I mm. mean I don't know what that range is I assume it's like five feet to six foot eight or something um mm. I'm just ballparking there but because um that's something that the current suits are just not able to accommodate very comfortably. There's a little bit of range, but not a whole lot. So these will be much, much better. And I think that's that will be very helpful. That's a great idea. I don't know if the suits themselves will be customizable you know what i mean like if you can change the dimensions of the suit in some way i don't think so i don't know how that would be possible or if they just are going to build them you know depending on what the requirements are by nasa depending on who the astronauts are
1: right because right now they got that modular kind of design right yeah you, you pick the shell that you know the torso that's roughly your size and the gloves that are your size and the legs and all that
0: maybe it'll be something like that yeah so talking about the money, right? So the total cost is $3.5 billion through 2034. So that basically means that that's covering the cost of, I think, the paying them for the development and then also uh, the use of the suits, the training, the whole thing. So that's a lot of money, but it's also $3.5 billion over more than a decade. And that's for everything that involves spacesuits. Um, that's kind of what my understanding was. So I guess that's not bad. I don't know. Um, again, I don't know. I tend to like be more interested in spacecraft and space, are a spacecraft of sorts, but uh, I right. don't know what the costs <laughs> associated with those usually are because uh, we've just had the same ones for a long, long time. So we don't usually talk about it. And this also includes what the current award was to each of these companies. So that amount was not disclosed, um, but it's enough to ensure that they have skin in the game. Um, but uh, they're not saying how much it actually was per company, just that there was some amount that was divided up among each of them. So, yeah, and this is also just apparently to uh, protect commercial solutions and competition. So, basically, I guess if you knew how much each company was getting, you might be able to infer something about the design and exactly what they're doing. Oh. I mean, I don't know. Does that sound reasonable? Because I don't know how else – that means to protect commercial solutions. Like that's an interesting way mm-hmm. of putting it.
1: Or maybe yeah, maybe if you know how much one company is committing to this, then you can get an idea about maybe you compete against them with other facets of their business. Mm-hmm. And so you can be like, oh, they must be heavily committed on the spacesuit, so maybe we can try to steal some of their market share in some other thing that they also do. With that three point five billion, right, we mentioned specifically that, right, these are spacesuits for both You know, ISS and future LEO operations as well as lunar excursions and all that good stuff.
0: (laughs) Is it that these companies are developing suits for each of those use cases or one suit that does both? Because that seems a lot less likely. But at the same time, are they developing two suits per company or one takes care of one and one the other? Like, I'm not sure about that.
1: I don't think we know. I don't know either. Yeah, I'm not sure at all. And I think it might just be because it hasn't been announced or told or the breakdown hasn't been Yeah. Established. Hmm. But trying to get one suit to fit both uh, use cases is probably a lot less efficient than getting, you know, suits to fit the individual ones, which then I wonder, you got two companies and two types of suits. Are you going to have, you know, each company create two suits or... Maybe just be like, Axiom, you you take the moon. Collins, you're better for Leo, or vice versa. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure about that. I guess we'll just have to wait and see about that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, and then one last thing to mention is that SpaceX, even though they did not win uh, this particular contract, they are still developing their own suit, which is based on the uh, Crew Dragon pressure suit. Um, and that's being funded by Jarek Isaacman. So, you know, some modified version of that, I guess, with MMOD protection and more like, you know, like life support features, uh, built into it. But, um, mm-hmm. maybe the same overall design. I mean, if it's based on it, I guess, I mean, there's a lot that they learned in the development of that suit. It's a very ambitious suit because it, it definitely looks like it was designed with aesthetics in mind, but I don't know what an extra vehicular version of that would look like, but it's got to be a whole lot larger, bulkier, and who knows what. But, um, it's pretty interesting, and uh, this is being developed specifically, or it's going to be tested during the Polaris Dawn mission. And this is where they're going to be taking a Crew Dragon higher than they've taken any Crew Dragon before. I don't remember the exact altitude, but basically, they're going to be grazing the Van Allen belts. So they'll be doing—I guess—they would have to be doing some EVAs during. That time, right? Because at some point in the orbit, you're going to be passing through them. But maybe the orbits mm-hmm. can be, or the evas can be timed in such a way that that, that you're not doing that. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, as I understand it, the spacecraft does provide a fair amount of protection, um, not complete, obviously. But I think, yeah, you wouldn't want to be outside of the spacecraft while passing through the Van Allen belt.
2: I mean, you you don't want to be in the Van Allen belt, period. If you have to be there, you want to have as much metal and water around you as possible.
1: I have a question for for you guys. If if the kind of Polaris Dawn spacesuit renders of being, you know, stylish and I guess tight fitting, right, not like a big bulky kind of thing, seems a bit unrealistic or or, or tough to square with what how our spacesuits have looked for the last four years. What happened with the uh, the Gemini? spacesuits that did just look like almost like pressure suits but just good enough to have the first american evas ever like what what was the flaw with that why why we went to the the more bulky type
2: so two things first off Mm -hmm. um keep in mind that spacex's flight suit looked much less bulky than their real flight suit like their concept art um or even their their early like test cuts on a dummy
1: that's a good thing to keep in mind. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Second, Gemini's suits, when used for an EVA, uh, calling them a pressure suit is actually a really fantastic way to describe it because they turned into balloons. Um, it was absolutely exhausting to wear them because they, they really were just a flight suit. When you went into the vacuum, they puffed up. Um, like blowing up a uh, a latex glove, and they held that shape the The difficulty of a spacesuit is at keeping a a constant volume no matter what shape the suit is deformed into. so like if you think about building a a monolithic suit, like um, basically making a, a glove that goes up to your shoulder and blowing it up like a balloon um it's going to go into the shape that you've uh, tailored it to be in and to push against the sides to to bring your hand up to your face or to extend your arm out if the default configuration is with a bent elbow you're having to put in energy to be able to do that deformation the reason is because when you when you blow up a balloon it takes the lowest energy configuration so in this case it's Inflating itself so that the pressure inside can be as low as possible. Anytime you move it away from that configuration, you have a fold or a pinch uh, or or something like that that increases the pressure inside. and so that that's what makes it feel stiff is is you're taking mm-hmm. it out of that optimal the lowest energy configuration. Mm-hmm. Um, so to make a spacesuit wearable, you have to build in joints that somehow are able to bend to multiple positions without changing the volume that they take up or the volume that's contained inside of them. So that's why one of the most common things you see is an accordion shape with uh, a, a joint on the outside. So that accordion shape, when you bend it to the left, the left accordion folds get smaller and the right accordion folds get bigger. Um, and it, you know, the, the pressure, the, the volume has somewhere to go as it moves. And, and, the Gemini suits totally lacked any of that. Um, they puffed up and they had no pressure relief. So you could bend them, but as you were doing so, you were increasing the pressure on the inside and it, it became exhausting very quickly. Um, the, the astronauts just were drenched in sweat, which means that their visor fogged up or had droplets of sweat on it. Um, and, and they were almost unusable. Just, yeah. just really, really, I mean, it, it it wasn't even a, a, a flaw, like, like flaw seems too minor <laughs> of a way to describe mm-hmm. the issue.
1: That makes sense. They did talk about how exhausted they were all the time. And mm-hmm.
2: so, yeah, I mean, they, they you know, you could go out for a 15 minute EVA and just be wiped. Yeah, really bad. Chubby in the chat says that there's an interesting uh, solution to To this issue, which is a pressure regulator, um, which means that when you bend your arm, instead of having to raise the pressure in the entire suit, the pressure regulator allows that pressure to escape. It kind of pulls that out. I don't, I don't know how well that works, but it, it seems very logical. Um, I'm sure there are some, some little gotchas that you got to include in that, in that design. But yeah, that, that seems like a, a good simplification, especially if it's a suit that you don't need to wear for too long. Uh, like a, a modification to a flight suit that makes it more usable in the odd case that you have to do an EVA in it or something
0: the other thing i think about those early gemini suits is also that not even taking into account how you know exhausting they were they probably just weren't even capable of the kinds of things that you know the suits now are like i don't think you mm. could do a 6 hour eva in one of those i'm pretty sure you couldn't
2: oh well yeah. they they were connected <laughs> to the capsules uh, air supply or the the capsule's life support so yeah right. i mean in in one sense yeah you couldn't because they didn't have or in, in one sense they they weren't as capable because they didn't have a life support but, you know, you can borrow it from elsewhere. And that's something that we may see in the future. You know, it, it doesn't seem like the safest way to do things. But as a backup system, yeah, having cables running around is better than being stuck inside the vehicle.
0: And well, and then one last thing I think also, um, I don't know what kind of protection they had, right? Like is, um, as far as the yeah. MMOD protection, it doesn't look very bulky. I think that that's like yeah. a large part of the bulk, too, is just shielding.
2: And, and what's interesting is back then, like, we basically designed a, a, a flight suit as a spacesuit and we didn't know what else we would need we didn't know what situations a different kind of suit would be good for and we didn't know what a different suit would look like so it really uh, one of the reasons i love early human spaceflight is just we had no idea what was happening until we mm-hmm. went and did it so it's one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to spacesuits is the idea of of constant volume.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's our spacesuit talk for this mm-hmm. week. Not mm-hmm. a whole lot to talk about, but I'll be interested to see, you know, what these things look like. I mean, this will be cool. Like this is not maybe not quite as cool as a Starship or a Crew Dragon or something like that. You know, yeah. like the new spacecraft, but still spacesuits are very important mm-hmm. and they'll be nice to see modern ones. Like what would that even look like and how much more capable and how much more comfortable will they be? At least I hope that they'll be more comfortable. I don't see how they could be less. If they could fix that, that would be great. The astronauts would very much appreciate it. Four short and sweets this week, and I believe Ben is going to go first.
2: Yes, please. Alright, after limiting its nighttime heater use, Ingenuity is still hunkering down, waiting to accumulate enough charge that it can return to a limited flight schedule. The team hopes to see this happen in the next few weeks. The Martian Winter will continue to challenge the mission for a few months, but at least the vehicle appears safe. After a return to flight, the team is considering alternative operations, like parking the vehicle on a slope to tilt its solar panels towards the sun.
0: And then next up, Shenzhou 14 has arrived. China's Shenzhou 14 crew, commanded by Chun Dong, alongside Taikonauts Liu Yang and Tsai Shu have safely arrived at the Tianhe space station just under seven hours after launch from Jiuquan. The crew will remain aboard for six months, during which they will oversee the installation of two more modules, Wan Tian and Meng Tian, to the current single module station. Each module, weighing more than 20 metric tons, will be installed in July and October, respectively. A co orbiting optical telescope is also slated to be launched in. 2023, capable of docking with Tianhe for repairs and refueling. The Shenzhou 14 crew will turn over the occupancy of the station to Shenzhou 15 in December, with a new crew rotating in every six months.
1: Next up release date for JWST's first full-color images announced. NASA has announced that the new Space Observatory's images will be released on July 12th, as the mission team approaches the end of preparing the telescope for science. While some early images have already been released, the observatory is still going through its roughly six-month period of calibration and alignment. Since JWST was originally slated to launch in 2007, these images will represent the culmination of decades of work. Once JWST transitions to performing science, it will start by working its way through a list of predetermined targets including asteroids, exoplanets, and galaxies.
2: And fourthly, OMG, SLS, WDR, ASAP. While SLS has been in the shop, the upper-stage helium check valve has been repaired, and flange bolts on the umbilical that was licking hydrogen have been tightened. Get-ahead tasks were also completed, including installing some of the Artemis One payloads in Orion and removing test instrumentation from SLS that already returned good data during the first rollout. A rollout is planned the night of Monday, June 6th just before this episode is published and the wet dress rehearsal is planned in two weeks no earlier than june 19th additional scheduling margin has been included this time around in case more than one attempt is required and air liquid has completed their off-site upgrades that allow them to now exceed sls requirements
0: so this week in spaceflight history uh we have just one winner who is deathkin so congratulations, uh, get an extra award for being the only one to decipher this very cryptic clue, making it harder for ourselves. And, uh, Dennis, you'll have to explain that clue. Cause I, to be honest, I still don't understand exactly, uh, what that has to do with today's event, even though I know what the event is, but I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it, but you're going to explain that to us. So, uh, I guess have at it.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I say I might have made it a little too hard. Pun intended. So the event was on uh, June thirteenth, two thousand twelve, and it was the launch of the New Star X-ray Observatory. And so right out the bat, right, New Star stands for Nuclear Spectroscopic Telescope Array. And as an X-ray observatory, we have other ones on orbit right now. Uh, Chandra and XMM-Newton are kind of the more famous ones. And uh, but unlike them, New Star was going to look at a new part of the. Uh, electromagnetic spectrum essentially uh, higher energy X-rays, and when you go to higher energy X-rays, you refer to them as hard X-rays. Lower energy X-rays are soft X-rays, and so that's what making it harder for ourselves was referencing the fact that this was NASA's, uh, and I think the first, yeah, sorry, the first ever hard X-ray observatory. So opening essentially a new window on the universe, um, where these would have energies from three to almost eighty uh, keV. Where Chandra and XMM would get up to maybe about 10 keV. And so this is essentially reaching uh, all the way to where you stop calling them X rays and start calling them gamma rays, where you then have to invent a different type of uh, optics to be able to detect them. So, New Star, uh, it's been up there for about a decade now, or a little over a decade, I believe. Or no, actually, it's exactly a decade. Oh, yeah, it's a 10 year anniversary. I just thought of that.
2: Yeah, such a great way to remember it. Is it's a- the 10 year right. anniversary <laughs> yeah. is is a decade yeah
1: i've managed to abstract what twisif means to such a point <laughs> that i didn't even realize that that means it's essentially its birthday this week yeah so um it was a nasa uh, smex or small explorer mission 11 and it was also explorer 93 did you guys realize this that we've been nasa's been keeping the explorer numbering system since Explorer 1.
2: That's pretty dang cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia, right? The lists on Wikipedia are the best. Go check it out. There's essentially a list of Explorer missions, and you can see a lot of missions. You probably recognize their names. Uh, TESS is a recent Explorer. It has its own Explorer number. I think uh, uh, XP, uh, the International X-ray Polarimetry Experiment, is the most recent one. But yeah, so it's it's got that same lineage as Explorer uh, 1. And I said international. Uh, XP's Imaging X-ray Polarimetry sure Explorer, I realize. Um, being a NASA mission. So, yeah. So, New Star, uh, like I I said, it's a NASA mission, but uh, the Italian Space Agency, ASI, and the Danish uh, Space uh, Institute, uh, DTU Space, uh, both collaborated a lot. It was launched, as I'll talk about in a bit, but its optics actually had flown and done some, I guess, pioneering uh, prototype uh, demo testing on a different uh, mission called... uh, Heft, or the High Energy Focusing Telescope. And this was a balloon bor- a balloon borne, uh, x-ray telescope. And so they basically put what would ultimately end up on New Star, uh, they strung it onto a balloon, uh, and flew it over New Mexico and picked a few targets and, uh, saw them in the x-rays. Oh, yeah. Chubby talking about picometers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I Everybody's just so ridiculous. I mean, and then you get to the radio side and everything's in frequency space. So a little bit about the ride to New Star's uh, launch to space. Uh, it actually flew on the fourth Pegasus launch um, and it flew out of uh, Kwajalein Atoll. And actually it might've been the fourth launch from the uh, Atoll or the fourth overall. I forget which. Yeah. So so Pegasus, this is a uh, horizontally launched rocket and they, they can Launch from the east and west coast, whether you're at the Cape or Wallops or Kwajalein uh, in this case. But I didn't realize that you also, fun little factoid, is that uh, Pegasus could also do retrograde launches from the Canary Islands. Um, I'm not sure if they ever actually did. But yeah, I don't think, even though they've never done it, if you go to their uh, payload user's guide, you do see them offer <laughs> the services, apparently, to uh, launch retrograde out of uh, the Canary Islands.
2: I mean, there there is a use for retrograde, but not, I don't know how many retrograde launches we've done in total. Can't be that many.
0: I wonder how that affects the payload, you know, the actual payload capacity, because uh, of that loss of delta v there
2: right yeah it's not a heavy lift vehicle yeah i mean it can't be that much worse than a sun synchronous launch but yeah it's definitely worse than a prograde launch
1: and so um the way a pegasus uh, the, the profile of a pegasus launch works is uh it being a horizontally launched vehicle it's uh, slung underneath a stargazer l-1011 uh, airplane and the uh, launch vehicle itself uh, has three stages uh, all solids and the fairing, which I want to point out, is uh, about eight or nine feet long, which is kind of fun because of the way New Star deploys itself on orbit. And so this thing was able to fit into an eight to nine foot um, long fairing. And uh, NASA picked it for price savings and also it, it was the right vehicle for the size uh, being a SMEX mission, a small explorers mission. Uh, New Star was designed to be uh, lightweight compared to previous X-ray observatories. And uh, unfortunately, there was some delay uh, uh, because of uh, fairing and flight computer issues uh, related to the launch vehicle. Um, there was an earlier delay where it was canceled and revived, where that was like almost a four years or so kind of delay. But there was a, a shorter delay that happened uh, just because of the, the, the Pegasus vehicle. One of the issues was related to the fairing, and I thought this was interesting. I, I, I had no idea about how uh, a Pegasus fairing uh, splits. So, um, it uses the same as, uh, Taurus XL, right? These are both orbital sciences slash AK slash Northrop slash whatever, right? <laughs> you made that joke last week then. So, right. Thank you. And, uh, and so Taurus XL had a pair of high profile failures, um, around this time. Uh, in 2009, I believe, in 2012, uh, where the fairing wasn't separating, and so they needed to change the fairing on the Pegasus XL because it had a similar one. What, what's cool about these, I didn't this this new thing that I learned, is that right? It's got this uh, ogive shape where it kind of tapers right to a, a point, like you know, a bullet or like you know, the external tank, you know, that very common kind of pointy shape there. But rather than just splitting each hemisphere equally. Uh, down the middle, when the fairing splits, there's actually a, a cap on the top of the whole vehicle, you know, that's, I guess, integrated into the fairing, that goes with one hemisphere. So one hemisphere, when they split down the seams, one hemisphere of the fairing brings the cap with it, and then the other one is missing a little circular chunk out of it. So that's that's how these Pegasus fairings are. And so that needed to be replaced. Uh, this actually, i believe, and here I'm going purely by memory, this might have been related to that, let's say, unscrupulous company that essentially got kind of caught for making defective fairings that caused a lot of missions to fail, um, or, or they created a component of a fairing that caused them to fail. They were They were basically... You know, selling. I don't know uh, the the uh, the they were selling Wasn't, something.
0: It was part of the separation mechanism, right? The um, yeah. It was like a a pyrotechnic, a frangible rail. There you go.
1: Yeah. So thank you, Leon. Uh, it was a frangible uh, rail. Appreciate that in the chat. The other issue that caused the delay of the New Star's launch was uh out of an out of production microcomputer that uh, had been on these vehicles, and they just needed to be replaced to bring the flight software uh, and simulations up to current standards, which. They thought it was going to be the easier of the two fixes, but that one actually uh, slowed things down a bit. But they figured, okay, well, we're going to delay the launch a bit, but make sure we get things done right. And that was a good choice because the launch was successful. So again, June 13th, 2012, the launch itself uh, is taking place. The Stargazer leaves Quasilean in about an hour. Uh, before it actually releases the rocket, uh, flies to about 39,000 feet. And then they release the, uh, the Pegasus XL. It free falls for five seconds before the first step fires. And 13 minutes later, all three uh, stages have done their thing, and it's now in a 650 by 610 kilometer orbit with an inclination of only six degrees. So they want it to be very close to equatorial, uh, in particular to minimize the South Atlantic anomaly exposure. Right. Those kind of charged particles are not going to be very good when you are, when you have X-ray detectors on your, your spacecraft, right? The, the, the background noise would just make it essentially worthless at that time. And so, uh, they wanted to be uh, equatorial so you can avoid the, you know, South Atlantic anomaly. Um, as its name implies, it's a bit at southern latitudes. Literally seconds later, the first signal uh, from the spacecraft is received uh, about to the ground via uh, TDRS, and uh, it deploys its one solar panel and passes health checks, and everything is happy and it's on orbit. And um, I thought this was a cool way to deploy the solar panel. Uh, it only had one uh, coming out of the you know the main spacecraft bus, but rather than just having it kind of fold up like a you know a, a map, say or something like you know a road map you might have had back in the day instead it wrapped around the spacecraft and then kind of unfurled itself out um i guess this was to to get it to fit in the fairing uh, nicely so this observatory itself so the pi's is uh, fiona harrison uh of caltech and uh the the spacecraft bus was based on the uh, orbital atk's leostar 2 and the the craft itself is a pretty cool pretty non-standard Style. So I alluded to before that they wanted this to be uh, much lighter, right? That's why, unlike Chandra, which was launched on, I mean, uh, the shuttle, and I think it was one of the heaviest payloads shuttle ever took. Not the heaviest, I think one of the trusses was, um, but right, which we kind of talked about fairly recently. But yeah, so so right, Chandra, you know, was sent up on uh, shuttle. XMM went on an Ariane five. Uh, But you're going to be sending this on a much smaller Pegasus rocket. And so to make it lightweight, uh, they made the mirrors out of different material that were much more lightweight. But a lot of mass could be saved if you got rid of the long part of the spacecraft that's basically connecting the mirrors on one end to the focal plane on the other end, right? Because the way these optics work is your x-rays need to pass through these nested mirrors, Wolter optics, that then cause the x-rays to... uh, Basically, change angle just a little bit, kind of grazing incidence it's called, and then get deflected slightly to the uh, to make a focus uh, at the focal plane where you put your detectors on the other side of the spacecraft. And so these, you know, with a focal plane of 10 meters, right, Chandra filled up the entire shuttle bay, right? And so these are that's a lot of mass connecting those two. New Star was going to have a similar uh, length to it, a similar focal length, but you couldn't have a single monolithic piece that was connecting them, so instead they split the spacecraft into two pieces essentially one piece had the optics, the telescope mirrors themselves, and then the other piece had the the focal plane so there was the optics bench and the focal plane bench um they were connected sitting on top of each other, and they fit again into a uh eight meter long fairing right which tapers and so clearly if 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 the uh uh, focal length right it needs to if they need to be separated by a good ten meters as it turns out or thirty three feet uh that 's just not going to do, which was the focal length of roughly uh Chandra, so they would come in together and then on orbit split apart and then have a mast system that would connect the two and hold them into their final rigid configuration but before I talk about the mast, let me tell you a little bit about the, the these two uh, uh Modules on the telescope. So the the one at the front end of the telescope, the optical bench, is a, a carbon composite, and it was a pair of telescopes. They originally started with three, but they you know downscoped it to just two, and it's 133 of these nested shells to make the uh, X-rays graze uh, across them and get deflected to the focal point. And each of them are thinner than a fingernail, so we're talking very very thin. And the the point spread function, basically, right, a dot of light of X-ray light would be spread out to 43 arc seconds in diameter or angular size on the detector. And so that is really, really, really low resolution imaging when you compare it to say Chandra, which has a fraction of an arc second uh, PSF, um, or even uh, XMM-Newton. But these are much harder x-rays, right? Much higher energies. And thus, uh, this is basically the best that you could do at that. And so really, really, really good. It also had a, a couple Europium-155 sources on retractable arms that I liked that it would go and basically stick into the uh, field of view of the telescope uh, when they wanted to calibrate it. Because it was a spectrometer, right? Was, um, the acid new star stands for uh, spectroscopic. And so if it wants to know, uh, you know, exactly which energy corresponds to which line, um, you want to have a source that you know uh, what its uh, x-ray spectrum looks like to use for calibration. But you could also calibrate on certain targets in the sky that we've been observing in the x-rays for decades. Now, the other half of the spacecraft is the focal plane bench, and that was made of aluminum. And that one had on it um, the canister that held this mast into place. The mast is really, really cool. It's based. It, it, it might be the same. I mean, I think it is the same mast as was used for the shuttle radar topography mission. Which is one of the cooler, wilder shuttle missions out there, Um, right? So this is the one where they, right, the shuttle opens payload bays and then had a, in this case, a 60 meter or 200 foot long mast uh, extend from the payload bay, and from that they were able to basically do incredible radar mapping of the Earth or most of the Earth uh, between latitudes, uh, pretty high latitudes the person who was in charge of this mast for new star uh yunjin kim uh at JPL was also the project manager for the shuttle radar topography mission and so it was it was you know that that old hand that came back <laughs> to basically uh, uh show them how to do it for here as well and so, um, in this case, it was a, it was a 10 meter mast uh, or 33 feet that would separate uh, the the two modules of New Star, and uh, it had 56 of these cube shaped units, and it took uh, just shy of half an hour for it.
0: It looks really cool. It's it it's. I don't know how you could describe that, so you probably have some method, but it's pretty neat.
1: Yeah, so I, I was struggling for a way to try to describe how it releases uh, these little modules, these little cubes that make up each segment of the mast. And so you've got this canister, right? And as these the wires that make up the mast are coming up and approaching the exit, of the canister they kind of rotate into place and right when they reach the exit of the 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 aperture of the canister the exit point then they kind of fold into spot and like or they bend into like a rigid i guess they unbend they straighten out into a rigid uh position that then holds it into place and then the next cube is made and underneath it the next one kind of rotates into place unbends and then falls into place and gets you the next uh cube and so on.
2: It looks like a friendship bracelet. You know the ones that like you kind of weave out of uh flat plastic extrusion? Or oh, flat I remember vinyl those extrusion. Way back in the day. Yeah. Or or it also kind of looks like if you take a long strip of paper, I used to do this all the time with um dot matrix printer paper. The,
0: oh yeah. The mm-hmm. the That's st- what I'm thinking of too. Yeah,
2: yeah. the strips and, and if you take it and you like bend it in half At a 45 degree angle, so you make an L and then you fold the top down and the left, right and the bottom up and the right, left and Mm -hmm. the top down. You, Mm -hmm. you get this like zigzag structure, um, that zigzags in alternating directions. And when you stretch it out, it kind of rotates kind of like a, um, one of those woven finger trap novelties. That's what it looks like to me, where you get that rotation and extension. At uh-huh. the same time. I mean the, the the truss structure is pretty straightforward. It's just it's it's square and cross section with diagonal braces. And uh-huh. I guess the diagonal braces must alternate in direction. No, yeah, they do alternate in direction. So you can
0: Well each square sits like ninety degrees offset from like where it's going to be deployed in relation to the one below it, right? If you think of it that way. So basically When it's
2: folded up, yeah.
0: Yeah. They're all stacked on top of each other, but when they extend they rotate 90 degrees and then that's when the little struts that connect them essentially extend out um there's yeah i'm thinking i i guess that little accordion piece of paper thing is the best thing but there's something that i am thinking of in my head but i can't think of what it is but i've held that particular type of motion like in my hands i just can't think of what i was holding like a toy or something or <laughs> it, feel, it, it it, like feels very familiar but i can't think of the right analogy uh-huh. or the right you know but yeah
1: no i think that was that was a great way to put it but
0: yeah very cool and and it extends a lot further like the spacecraft itself i mean compared to when it's fully deployed it's a lot longer like it that, it, that it's actually...
2: a it's a higher aspect ratio than a q-tip I don't
0: know how you figure that out so quickly, but. Well, no, I mean, I
2: mean, if you're just looking at it, like if you think about a Q-tip, you've got like, you know, a long stick with lumps at the end. And that's really what this is. Mm -hmm. And like the size of the lumps compared to the diameter of the truss is about right for a cotton, uh, for a Q-tip, cotton, but a Q-tip. but the The stick in the middle is way longer than a Q-tip. It's it's really, it's really <laughs> impressive. I, I'm I mean, like I, I'd seen photos of it before, but I hadn't really engaged with it enough to be this this impressed.
1: No, it is something else. And and I just again, I love the fact that it's got shuttle heritage uh, on there and one of the cooler shuttle missions ever. And so as you can imagine, right? If 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 most of the spacecraft is in terms of length, is this mostly empty? mast structure then you got a huge amount of weight savings because for Chandra and XMM those that you didn't have a mast you just had I guess, you know, metal or aluminum or whatever holding them together. And so I, I don't know about you. The first thing you think of is, okay, well, when you're pointing at an object in the sky, <laughs> is there going to be some wiggling and jiggling between the two modules that are now separated by over 30 feet <laughs> um, as your uh, your gyros try to keep you pointed at the right object? Um, and indeed, yes, <laughs> And you need to essentially ex post facto uh, <laughs> solve for that. Uh, By having a metrology system, right? A measuring system to basically keep track of things. Now, all things being equal, if they didn't try to correct for anything, uh, then uh, the... Thermal effects uh, alone, the worst case thermal effects would basically take a, a vector, right, a line from the uh, focal plane bench to the optical bench, going that whole, you know, 10 meters or 33 feet. The thermal effects might wiggle that around by 1.5 millimeters, which doesn't sound like much, but that corresponds to an angle on the sky of 30 arc seconds, which with a uh, only a 43 arc second PSF. That's pretty bad. That's going to blur you out significantly. So that's the
2: the mast is ten, a little over ten meters long. So Mm. a thirty meter deflection, right? Is that what you said? No, thirty arc second. Oh, one and a half millimeter deflection.
1: So yeah, one and a half millimeter deflection.
2: Yeah, I mean,
1: like that should like literally be one point five millimeters divided by.
2: Yeah, I mean, like that. uh, When uh, you uh, think about these dimensions, like that's actually a decent amount of deflection, like that. Just getting to that point, especially with a deployable super, super lightweight mass, that's actually really impressive. Even though it's not mm-hmm. quite good enough, it's that's still really impressive.
1: Right. I mean i if, if if I built this mass, it would it would deflect a lot more than one. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm out here with toothpicks and marshmallows, and my thing has flopped over three six or a uh, one eighty degrees. It's got a U bend in it. Yep. Um, I can't do science with this.
1: Yeah, I I think I I built that speed. I think I built my version of this in Kerbal, and just was like, all right, gotta add more shirts. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, the way to get around this, uh, the the metrology system consists of uh, a star tracker as well as lasers. And so the Star Tracker sits on the optical bench. It's pointed in the same direction as the telescopes. And right, to give you an idea, right, the, the telescopes, they're the same size. They're they're co-aligned. Uh, they're pointing in the same direction. And so uh, they're right next to each other. It's very binocular looking. And so the Star is sitting on that same bench, and it solves the the three-degree-of-freedom uh, rotation and so basically gets you the optical bench's attitude. Okay, that's fine. That's something that happens uh, In in normal spacecraft now there's six degrees of freedom between the two benches right the rotation uh between them as well as their translational position between them uh, and how you know closer far away they are from each other and so what they do is they basically have a laser the laser yeah the laser is on the optical bench and is aimed at a detector on the focal plane bench and -hmm. from that you can tell where you're wiggling or jiggling, uh, you know, where you're off nominal. You know, you're you're not lined up quite right. Now, uh, longitudinal thermal variations, right, so going, if they're a little closer to each other or a little further from each other than the, you know, 10 meters or 33 feet, um, that's less than a, a tenth of an arc second of error. So, on this scale, that's just ignored, essentially. They don't try to correct for that. Um, and they also don't bother with the, uh, whether or not the two are parallel to each other, the the two benches, right? One of them might, you know, be flexing a little one direction relative to the other. Um, The star tracker uh, on the optical bench can solve for that. So what the lasers look for is, are the benches uh, shifting, you know, in the X and Y direction, you know, uh, translating relative to each other, right? Are they kind of, uh, uh, shifting, like if you had a, uh, a stack of cards and you sheared the stack by pushing on the top card to the you know, to the side, um, the difference now between the top card and the bottom card they're offset. As well as uh, what's called the clocking, ang- what they call the clocking angle, which is really just the rotation of the benches, whether they twist a lot. Right, if they're both starting with their you know one axis aimed at 12 o'clock, and then one of them starts to stray a little closer to 11:30, uh, that's the clocking angle, that difference between them. And so those are the three things that the laser uh, metrology system really works for. And so uh, since all it really needs to do is just keep track of that positioning, um, it's really just a essentially a large photodiode, a twenty millimeter photodiode um, sitting on there, um, which I'm you know that's large for me. And uh, they 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 do like some clever things to make sure that the quality of the signal that it's getting from the that the detector is getting from the laser is is good that. Um, It's not getting stray light, so they have a baffle there to block that out. Um, They use a narrow pass filter to only pick the laser light. And then a neutral density filter, which is basically, that's a term that pops up a lot in astronomy. That's a filter that dims all visible wavelengths equally. Essentially, so um, that's something you might want to put on. Say, uh, if you're looking at the moon and the moon's in a full phase and it's going to be coming really bright through your telescope, you stick a neutral density filter on there, and it'll be less hard on your eyes as you look through the eyepiece. And and then in addition to all that, every four seconds, it's uh, basically turning off the laser and getting background measurements of any you know stray light mm-hmm. from the the Earth or the Sun or uh, just you know other celestial sources. And so uh, doing those background subtractions uh, is how it's able to basically hold itself uh, so. You know, perfectly, even though, again, like you said, this has an aspect ratio. Uh, it's even, uh, longer than a toothpick in that sense. Or not toothpick, sorry, uh, um, Q tip. Q tip, thank you. So, anyway, the launch was successful. Um, at T plus nine days, they did the mass deployment. Uh, like I said, it took a little under half an hour, but that worked out, uh, very well. And so they then did checkouts and testings, um, for the next couple of weeks. And, uh, at, uh, based on my calculations, going, going through news articles uh, on New Star's website, it looked like they got their first light at somewhere around T plus 16 days. And they looked at Cygnus X1, um, kind of canonical, very famous uh, X-ray source, very bright X-ray source on the sky. Um, I think the first X-ray source uh, discovered uh, in in the sky. And then uh, after, you know, T plus a few months, they started doing their first science. Um, They've been doing tons of science since then. You see their papers uh talking about New Star and referencing New Star uh appearing all the time. And so even though I don't know, it might not be one of the most well known observatories, it's 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 really cool. It's done a lot of great things because it opened up a new window on the universe. And um even though it opened that new window, it, it wasn't it's not the only thing on orbit right now that's doing that too. Uh you know, about half a decade after uh, New Star's launch, uh China launched the uh uh hard X-ray modulation telescope, uh which is uh you know, still on orbit and taking data as well at these harder x-rays, these higher energy x-rays. It's really cool. It's uh, added to the fleet of x-ray observatories we have on there, so very complementary to Chandra and XMM and uh, other things on orbit. And so, uh, yeah, go New Star. And that is your uh, event for this week in spaceflight history. Happy tenth! <laughs> yeah. yep.
2: So, so real quick, I got I got to do a little uh, correction slash elaboration. So, when I was looking at videos of this thing, this this is on the the truss, which like anybody who knows me at this point should know that that's my favorite part of this whole thing. Um, it, it looked to me like there were alternating diagonal struts, and that's not the case. So, the rigid structure is entirely made up of squares that uh, are stacked like cards. I I have cards stuck on my head now. And the squares have the vertical members, which um, are floppy. They can flop left and right. And so that's how you get the rotation. And then it's not braces in the middle. They're actually cables. Um, and the cables are, are really neat. Um, in the middle of the intersection of these two cables is a little like a pulley system. And so what's really neat is the cables don't actually run from one corner to the other corner, uh, straight across. Instead, the, the one presumably on, well, they, they, f- they're both V-shaped, kind of like the flap of an envelope, and they meet in the middle. And one of them, I'm assuming it's the bottom set looking at a patent document, uh, is fixed in that pulley uh, thing in the middle and the top one can slip back and forth. And so what happens is as you rotate, um, those two cables slip across each other. If, if that, if that's a good way to describe it, but, uh, when they get to their final position, that pulley can lock in place. Um, I, I'm pretty sure these pulley systems are not, uh, motorized. Instead, the motors are, are inside the, the canister, I believe. And so just by rotating it, you're causing the, the longerons, the, the floppy vertical members, uh, to go from laying on their sides to standing up. Um, and that extends the distance between, uh, each of the batten squares, that's the, the horizontal pieces are called battens. Um, and so that the, the batten squares separate just because the longerons are standing up and the cable on each face, the cable's passing through the pulley. And then once you get to the full, uh, proper rotation where everything's square with each other, uh, those, those cables just lock in place and that, and then you're done. I've got a couple of PDFs that I've dropped in the show notes. Um, and it, it's really fantastic. The, the best cable or the best, uh, uh, document here is called, um, uh, I don't, I don't know what the title of this presentation is, but it's a PDF that was, or a, uh, PowerPoint that was presented at the eighth Patras workshop on Axions, Wimps and Wisps, 2012, Chicago. Um, and there, there's some really good, uh, data on the on the vehicle as a whole uh, the optics and photos of the instrument um, but there's one one slide that's masked in and metrology and it it's got some really nice it's got a label diagram and it's got uh, a cool image that shows the the rotation of the batten corresponding to the height of each unit it's very very cool structure here. Um, this, this is, if you try to Google this, you're not going to find much until you start Googling the able deployed articulated mast, uh, the atom, which is the shuttle heritage. Uh, that's exactly what it is. So you're not going to find anything on, on the new star mast. You got to look at the able, the, the atom mast, the able deployed articulated mast. And that's where you're going to find how these mechanisms actually work.
1: Oh, could I also highlight that um the colin and and this is you know it's all coming back to me uh Colin is pointing out that x p also has a mast mm-hmm. between them, it being a smaller uh vehicle as well not not quite not quite a great observatory, but hmm. uh I don't know if uh the details of that one, but hopefully you know. Uh, someday that'll be history (laughs) and then we'll be able to talk
0: about it. Well, that was a cool look into new star and it's cool tensegrity deployment (laughs) system. (laughs) That's a new word that we've learned. (laughs) Um, so Ben, uh, you have the, uh, event for next week and the date range is the 14th of June through the 20th of June. And do you have a clue for us? Yep.
2: Next week in 1961, the clue is C3PO is not a no-go. C3PO
0: is not a no-go. Yeah, that <laughs> that is weird. I like it. But if you think you know what that Star Wars reference is in <laughs> is in reference to, <laughs> uh, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody, and a big
2: thank you to Mike Stewart for checking uh, our Twissif clues uh, almost every week. He's kind enough to exclude himself from guessing, and so we've been sending him the clue and the date range and. Uh, some links and he's making sure he's being an extra pair of eyes.
0: All right. So let's move on to the upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, We have about
2: four of those, I think. All right. First up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Nilesat 301. Uh, This is going to be going to uh, the 7 Degrees West slot that's owned by Nilesat. And, uh, it's, uh, broadband and internet satellite, uh, for, uh, for, yeah, Nilesat. I mean, they're an internet company. Um, that's going to be launching on Wednesday, June 8th at 21.04 hours UTC out of Cape Canaveral. Uh, Looks like it's uh, Slick 40.
1: And then Friday, June 10th, we've got another Falcon 9, but this time taking Dragon CRS-2 SpaceX 25. So this is a commercial resupply mission. So it's the 25th one by SpaceX, and uh, it's under the second uh, contract that they signed with NASA. And so it's going to be bringing all sorts of goodies on orbit. And uh, I apologize in advance for the mix of UTC and Eastern Time, but there's going to be a lot of NASA coverage, and they give that in Eastern Time. So in any event, the launch itself, again, Friday, June 10th, it has an instantaneous launch time at 1422 UTC and flying out of uh, Kennedy at uh, Launch Complex 39A. Now, you can watch a little ahead of time, though, because at 10 a.m. Eastern uh, is when coverage will begin on NASA TV, and a couple of days later, I guess it's taken the 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 slow path to to station, uh, the the more uh, leisurely trip, and so on Sunday, June twelfth at 4:30 a.m. Eastern time will be coverage of the rendezvous and docking of the cargo dragon two. Uh, station with the docking itself scheduled at 603 a.m. Eastern.
0: And then after that, on the 13th, we have the launch of Capstone. So this is one of those, uh, rare rocket lab launches. that doesn't have a funny name. So this is just a uh, mm-hmm. Capstone launching on Electron. Uh, yeah. So this is, um, going to be using the photon space tug and it's going out to that, uh, halo orbit in of space. So very cool. Um, and this is obviously to do a little bit of, uh, I guess, what would you call it testing, proving, uh, research. I'm not sure what, like all three, uh, yeah. for the future gateway. Space station, so uh, very cool, and it will be launching from Launch Complex One B off the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand, and the time for that zero nine hundred UTC, which is about five o'clock in the morning on the East Coast, so kind of an early one, but maybe if you're in the states, you can watch it if you get up super early.
2: And then lastly, we have uh, Nuri, which is uh, KSLV two. Um, this is uh, its second flight test. And on board is just a a mass simulator. It's going to be going to a sun-synchronous orbit. Uh, Pretty neat. So this is uh, a little bit of a wide launch window uh, when you're considering going to sun-synchronous orbit. But if you're not uh, hitting an orbit for a particular uh, latitude for a client, doesn't really matter. Uh, So this is going to be launching Wednesday, June 15th between 0600 hours UTC and 0800 hours uh, UTC. And uh, that's flying out of the Naro Space Center in South Korea. All right, and those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: All right, that's all of them. And so with that, let's gear up the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record
1: live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5.00 Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to McMally, Sty Garfield, Deathkin, Mike, Kent, Chubby, Stanley Foyot, Leon Running Man, Delta VVT, The Greek, Colin, and Psy Kyle for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you.
2: Take a breath after that one. Mm-hmm. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links,
0: and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com, and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, or a orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by email info at
0: the all right that's it we'll see you next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you